Hi, I'm Carla Marie Sweet, and you are listening to the Playmakers Podcast, a new podcast by Box of Tricks Theatre Company that's all about platforming creative conversations with theatre makers from all parts of the industry. This episode's guest is the marvellous Matthew Zia. Matthew is the award-winning artistic director of Actors Touring Company. He was previously associate artistic director at the Royal Exchange Theatre Manchester, where he established Open Exchange, an artist development scheme for over 400 next-generation theatre makers. He's also been the director-in-residence at the Liverpool Everyman and Playhouse, associate director at Theatre Royal Stratford East and associate artist at Nottingham Playhouse. Matthew has directed some of the UK's most talented actors, including Daniel Kaluuya, Cynthia Erivo, Maxine Peake, David Haig, Samuel Barnett, Malachi Kirby, Yolanda Kettle, Erin Doherty and Joseph Quinn. And his plays include the Young Vic production of Blue Orange, a three-stop tour of One Night in Miami, Into the Woods at the Royal Exchange and most recently the live theatre version of Hey Dougie for which he won an Olivier Award. I was lucky enough to see one of his plays at the Fringe last year, and I was incredibly lucky to get a ticket because it was sold out for pretty much every single performance. As with all episodes of the Playmakers podcast, this conversation is pretty raw, uncut and unfiltered. So you may hear the odd swear word that hasn't been beeped and some discussions around sensitive topics. We recorded this episode months before he actually won the Olivier Award, so he doesn't talk about what it was like to win the award in this episode. However, he does talk about what it was like making Hey Dougie. So listen out for that. Here's Matthew's ear. So I'm going to start off with the question that I've asked pretty much everyone I think I've spoken to so far, which is why theatre? I think initially when I was a a small child in need of uh, attention, and an outlet, theatre was the place that gave me that. And my local theatre, my local youth theatre, was the place that provided that. Uh, I came from uh, a fairly, I want to say a fairly complicated household. What do I mean by that? Uh, We were poor, and therefore people had to go out and work, and therefore I was quite often left to my own devices. I acted out a lot in school. Uh, That's what my therapist now calls it, acting out. Uh, (laughs) And I realised that acting... Uh, could get me a, a more useful form of attention than acting out could get me. Um, but also I felt like I was listened to uh, and it felt empowering when I was like a 12-year-old kid. Why theatre now at the big old age of 40? Um, I, I feel like I certainly made a decision to lean more into theatre. I, I had a, a career as a DJ uh, for quite some time and I was doing that. Uh, and in 2012, uh, I DJed at the London Paralympic opening ceremony in front of more people than I could ever imagine uh, on my twenty on my thirtieth birthday, sorry, which was on the twenty ninth of August uh, in Stratford, which is where I was born and raised. And I just thought, I think it's time to stop DJing. Uh, I've done that. Uh, I really want to move into the world of theatre. And for me, they are directing. Certainly, is like the same thing as DJing. You have a room full of people with expectations uh, and you have to satisfy their expectations uh, and and take them across the evening. Uh, I read a book by Bill Brewster called Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, uh, which is about how the DJ has replaced the role of the shaman uh, in in popular culture uh, in everyday life. And that person who kind of orchestrates the energy of an evening for a collective 
uh, I think is is the same role that I, I have as a DJ, as a director. Um, and for me, again, like the similarities are manifold in that I'm still looking for stories that are underrepresented, voices of people in housing estates and in, in communities that don't feel like they have a place or a space. Um, and maybe, maybe it's the only thing I can do now because I've spent far too long working on it and don't do anything else. I have so many, so many thoughts and so many questions. But first of all, your birthday is on the 29th of August. Yeah. Which is typically like Notting Hill Carnival weekend, right? Notting Hill Carnival weekend. What a time to have your birthday, especially somebody who's so into music and, you know, music was your first career. So can we go into a little bit more detail in terms of like, what made you want to quit music and make that movement into theatre because obviously we talked a bit about how theatre was very appealing to you as a kid but then we kind of had this journey through music and then we kind of went back to theatre so what what was that journey how did that happen? Yeah uh, so the, the potted history version I guess is uh, at the age of 11 I went to my local youth theatre uh, at the age of 12 or 13 uh, a friend got me into hip-hop and we started rapping uh, quite quickly realised I wasn't very good at rapping. Uh, and so I thought, well, I'll stand at the back behind a table and you guys can rap and I'll play the music. Uh, and so that became the, the relationship. And then I got into making music. Uh, by the time I was 16, I'd, I'd been in a short film directed by Armando Iannucci uh, called Tube wow. Tunnels. And I thought, I don't want to act anymore. Uh, I, I don't know. If, 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 if what I'm describing is I set a goal, I achieve it, and then I quite quickly get disinterested in it, uh, <laughs> which maps wonderfully onto my ADHD, of course. Um, ah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, no, um, at the age of uh, 18, I was on pirate radio. I'd, I'd done some acting, and I'd been called back into the world of theatre to make music for some theatre productions. So I became a sound designer and a composer for theatre. Stopped acting, uh, ended up being picked up by the BBC as a DJ and had this radio show on the BBC. And I thought, well, this is what I'm going to do. And then I was playing clubs up and down the country um, and really thought that I would have no involvement with the world of theatre other than creating music for productions. Um, and then in 2007, which I think was the year after I'd left One Extra, a guy who I'd been collaborating with on, on making some theatre productions, but this was me writing the music for it, said, um, I'd love you to write the music for this other show, but also I want you to co-direct it and be in it. I said, I don't really want to be in it. And he said, well, it's like an onstage director role. And I went, oh, okay. And he said, you're going to co-direct it. And I said, I don't know what that means, uh, but I'll sit next to you while you direct it. And he said, that's kind of what it means. Um <laughs> ended up co-directing this this production of Jean Genet's The Blacks, which we called The Blacks Remixed because we'd kind of changed the sound of it. Um, and that did quite well. And I got an agent off the back of that as a director. And wow. I quite like directing. I, I'd enjoyed the process of it. And I'd, I'd... my youth theatre leader uh, says that uh, when I was about 15, I said to her, when are we going to do the real shit? Uh, which I understand now to mean not acting, but the creative process of writing and directing. So, so clearly there was um, a hankering for that in me, but I'd, I'd forgotten about it. Um, and then I think I'd spent, by, by the time I got to 2012, I spent 15 years DJing, essentially, the majority of that professionally. I'd done lots of the things that I'd wanted to do. I played festivals, I had a national radio show, 
won some awards. I made music for people. I DJed in clubs up and down the country. And I think there was something about lifestyle. I just remember getting quite tired of being in a club halfway up the country at 3am waiting for a taxi to take me back to my hotel. And I thought, I'm going to make the jump. And I'd, I'd, I mean, I'm cutting out lots of stuff here, but I'd, I'd been making theatre at Stratford East and I'd become their associate director. And then I'd moved down to the Young Vic and become aware of the Genesis Directors Programme and assisted David Lang and was really thinking, actually, I think the thing I want to do is, is be a director. With the real ambition being that I wanted to be an artistic director because I wanted to, I wanted to be able to empower people in the same way that I had been empowered at the age of 11 and 12 when I walked into that theatre. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I started saying things like, oh, I make beats. And uh, Philip Headley said, oh, you're a composer, are you? Uh, and I said, yeah, and I write raps. And he said, oh, so you're a lyricist as well. So I wanted and still want to be able to give that opportunity of kind of the leg up, the, the, the empowering uh, opportunity to an individual who has artistry within them. Um, and then the other thing, I guess, two, the two other things that, that kind of made me want to end my DJing career is that at the age of 16, I dropped out of sixth form college and said to my mum, I'm going to become a superstar DJ. And she said, you've got two years to achieve that dream. Otherwise you go back to college within those two years, uh, because she took the safety net away and said, you make it work or, or you return to the place you don't want to go. Uh, I had to make it work. So for me, getting the show on the BBC was kind of achieving that goal. And then when I was stood in Stratford in front of 85,000 people, I thought, there's nothing after this for me. Like, this is the pinnacle of what I wanted to achieve. I've yes. achieved it. At the same time, I'd applied for the Regional Theatre Young Directors Scheme and was about to relocate to Liverpool with my partner and uh, would start thinking about having children. And so I guess I wanted a lifestyle that was more conducive to uh, being a father. Uh, and that didn't involve being halfway up the country at 3 a.m. in the morning. And, you know, DJing and radio in general is not necessarily conducive to that kind of lifestyle, is it? Having also worked at One Extra for like four and a half years, obviously we weren't there at the same time, but Mm. definitely I can identify with that lifestyle of, you know, sometimes I'd be working shifts that would finish at like 4am. Sometimes I'd be working shifts that started at 6am and it was very like, you know, you, you, you follow the music and sometimes that means that your sleep pattern is all over the place and the work-life balance isn't always quite there and because you're following the music you're following the parties as well and it's yeah yeah, definitely a lifestyle shift when you leave but I'm really interested in this in this sort of overlap that you had of kind of doing the DJing thing doing the one extra thing but also starting with the whole directing thing and exploring that other avenue because I think it's true for a lot of people that work at Radio One and One Extra and BBC Asian Network there's that kind of side project side hustle or whatever that they have going that then sometimes does become that main hustle so what was it like for you when you were like, okay, this this is it. Like, I'm really going to go for it. Did you have, because obviously you were part of this sort of young directors program, but did you have a job to go straight into or was it a bit of a risk kind of leaving when you left One Extra? Um, well, the, 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 the leaving One Extra wasn't my choice. That was their choice. Uh, and then I carried on doing internet radio for a bit. Uh, up until 2012, actually. And, and the thing that happened in 2012 was that I applied for this regional theatre young director scheme, which relocated me to Liverpool as resident director at the Liverpool Everyman and Playhouse. So I did have a job to go to. I think 
uh, I think it paid about a thousand pounds a month. So going from DJing where I was earning quite a bit of cash from the age of 18 up till 30, that was a, a, a risk, I guess, but it was a risk I was willing to take because I felt like it would set me up for future opportunities. Um, I knew that, that life was a little cheaper in Liverpool. Uh, yeah. I had uh, and still have a partner who who earns much more money than I do. Well done. Uh, <laughs> I knew that I could lean into that uh, yeah. in terms of kind of supporting that transition out of, of the music industry into something more steady in the world of theatre. Um, and I had belief, I guess. I had self-belief. And, I, and there was enough, I felt like I had enough experience at Stratford East and Young Vic to kind of know where to go looking for opportunities. But also I had a year's worth of employment with the, the RTYDS scheme. Um, all of those schemes are so essential for kind of giving someone a foothold, particularly when you come from a impoverished background. And, and in a way, I think the reason I did so much when I was a young man is because I just had to say yes. If someone said, here's 80 pounds, can you? I would say, yes, I can. Sorry, what do you for again? Yeah, I can do that. I'll do that thing for you. Uh, and whether that was writing an article, uh, DJing somewhere, writing a bit of music, um, acting in something, just whatever it was that needed to be done, if I, if I felt like it was within my skill set, or just slightly beyond my skill set, I would say yes, and then quickly learn how to do the thing that I was being asked to do. And this is kind of how it happens, you know. Um, we mentioned your ADHD. I've also been diagnosed with ADHD. And you sort of look at your life and wonder, do I have this portfolio career because of the ADHD or is it because I don't come from a rich background and so I've had to have a, a portfolio career out of necessity, you know? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so much teaching. I, did, I just remember, so, and I still do a lot of, a fair bit of teaching, but I was doing like production workshops in, in how to make beats. Uh, I was doing drama workshops, acting workshops, running little young young companies and youth theatres. Um yeah, just the more I think back about that period between 20 and 30, it was great because I had focus and direction, but the pennies were not uh, readily available in the way that I would have wished they were. Um, Do you sort of look back at the end of One Extra and, you know, because you, you, you mentioned that it wasn't your choice. Do you look back at that now and sort of go, oh, thank God that ended when it did, because if I hadn't, I might not be where I am now? Um, not really, and and maybe that's because I don't really stop and take stock in that way. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful for where I am now, uh, particularly from from the circumstances of my birth. Uh, it's, it's been a long, very inorganic, very unorthodox kind of pathway to where I am now, I think. Um, but no, I don't think I'm the sort of person who stops and goes, well, if that hadn't happened, would this have happened? If that hadn't happened, would this have happened? Because I kind yeah. of believe that you're the, the architect of your own destiny. Um, mm -hmm. so if you mm -hmm. want something to happen, you have to put yourself in a position to make it happen. Um, you have to remove the safety net so you can't fall backwards. You can only fall forwards into the thing that you're hoping to do. Um, yeah. yeah. We, we are the author of our own story, as Zadie Smith so beautifully puts it. Um, so you're you're all about moving forward, trying to, um, yeah, trying to move forward uh, and 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 trying to navigate obstacles, internal obstacles, external obstacles, obstacles that come in the form of institutions and other people, but also self doubt, self criticism, imposter syndrome, all of that. When did you start to think 
this theatre career, this this could be sustainable. This could be something that I could really live off. Was there kind of like a turning point where you were like, right, I'm doing it. This is this is actually going to be okay. Yeah, a couple of them, I think, like like in a slightly phased way. The first one was was in 2009 when I got the job as associate director at Theatre Royal Stratford East in a job share, interim job share, because uh, someone had gone off to do some training. And so this position opened up and I thought, oh, I've been here my whole life. Maybe I could apply for that job. Um, and when I, I remember writing to Dominic Cook, he was, he was running the Royal Court at the time. Never met him, didn't know who he was, and I said, but dear Dominic, uh, I'm about to go for a job in a theatre that I've been working in for a long time, but I've never been interviewed for this sort of position. Would you be able to do a mock interview? And I, he invited me to his office and I did a mock interview for him, uh, which was amazing because you can say, stop, I haven't thought about that. What should I say? What would you say? And then he coach and guide, which was, was uh, very generous of him. Um, mm. So that was the first time I was like, oh, there's something here. The second time was when I assisted David Lamb at the Young Vic and I went, oh, there's, who knew there's more than one theatre in the world? Amazing. I can <laughs> work in other buildings. Uh, then the Regional Theatre Young Director Scheme, because I put all of my eggs into that one basket. But I would say the real decisive moment for me was uh, when I won the Genesis Future Directors Award in 2013 uh, with, a, with a play called Sisway Banzi is Dead, which we did with the Young Vic. And then I taught it around the country with Eclipse. Uh, Dawn Wharton picked it up and then we taught it around the UK um, and after the off the back of that it's felt like I've been steadily employed in theatre so after that I went to the Royal Exchange as Associate Artistic Director then did lots of freelance work and then made a main house show at the Young Vic and you know pantomimes at Stratford uh, and then started getting calls off the back of that to go and work at places like the Sherman Theatre and Nottingham Playhouse um, so yeah, I would say the real big turning point for me is 2013, 2014, the Genesis Directors Award, and then leaving uh, Little Point of Man and Playhouse and moving over to the, the Royal Exchange. What would you say has been the highlight of your career so far? There are so many, Carla, honestly. like the, the, When I look back at my CV, one, it's really good at like reminding me that my self-doubt and imposter syndrome is, is just the inner workings of my own mind. Um, Silly things, DJing at the Paralympic opening ceremony with a billion people watching on television on my 30th oh. birthday with my tiny little dot of a mum out there somewhere in the audience was <laughs> incredible. Um, directing Daniel Kaluuya, Luke Norris and David Haig in Blue Orange at the Young Vic. Uh, judging the Eurovision Song Contest last year. But again, so every now and then my phone rings and there's a really wild offer at the other <laughs> end of that phone. And I'm like, you want me to do that? Judge Eurovision? Sure. Okay, let's do that. Um, so, yeah. Also, I'm just really, really proud. Uh, I guess the thing I'm really proud of is that I was, and it, like, get the violins out, please. Uh, but I was born into abject poverty, and I've made a career for myself when the odds were really stacked against me. And lots of people who grew up in the neighbourhood I grew up in, uh, were very much at risk of, of imprisonment, uh, young offenders, institutions. And I was on the cusp of going to a pupil referral unit many times, had child psychologists and all sorts of stuff. Um, and interventions, a number of interventions. And so I think that's the thing I'm proudest of, that, that, I'm, that I'm here. Yeah. 
So were you diagnosed with ADHD when you were when you were younger? Was it no? So this has no. been an adult diagnosis. Yeah, in, in the last year. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Same. So yeah. So there's that kind of internalizing of like, why am I like this? And yet still kind of having self belief at the same time. So how's that worked? Uh, I think when I was younger, I was foolhardy, as in I didn't think about consequences. I didn't think this could go badly. This isn't going to work. Um, which I wish I still had, actually. I, I, uh, I don't think it was self-belief, but it was drive and ambition. And I remember saying things in school like, I'm never going to have a boss which meant nothing, but it just meant... <laughs> and then I've had many bosses. Of course, I had bosses at the BBC. I've had a boss on every single job I've ever done. I've got a boss now. Um, but I think I meant, like, I kind of want to work for myself. I want to do the sorts of things that I love doing. Uh, and making that decision foolishly at the age of 16 has kind of protected me and, and ensured that I have always done work that I have enjoyed. Um, have you never had a nine to five? Have you never done a normal quote unquote job? No, not really. I, I used to do a, a real tiny bit of uh, a tiny bit of a subsection of an industry, which is called club promotions, uh, where you're basically sending records and CDs to DJs and recording their responses on a form and sending those to the record label. You were a plugger at one I, stage. I was a plugger. Yeah, I was a plugger. And I did that for about two months. Um, and then I was like, nah, I'm not enjoying stuff in envelopes. It's really tedious. And I don't. <laughs> so I'm going to stop. Um, I was on Sony Street Team for a bit. But again, this is all before I was 18. Uh, my uncle ran a recruitment firm. So I did uh, some warehouse packing, a whole oh. shift, uh, and some uh, driver's mate, which is now an obsolete job, which just meant reading the map and saying, turn left here, turn right at the next turn. Yeah. Uh, which has now been replaced by um, GPS. Uh, <laughs> that for a day. And the, the one day I did it, the guy who was driving was trying to pour a bloody flask of tea between his legs, looked down, pouring his tea, took his hands off the wheel and smashed into the back of another car. So again, I thought, this is this is not a job for me. <laughs> wow. And then the police came and like, I'm too hip hop, right? So when the police turned up and they were like, what happened? I said, I don't know. I don't talk to police. And my response, that was it. Um, so, yeah, well, I'm not doing this. And actually, I realized that DJing, I could make the same amount of money for less time doing something I loved. Uh, yes. So, no, I've never really had uh, a proper nine to five. I guess this, the running actor storing company and being an associate artistic director of a major producing house is, is the nine to five I've had. So, let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, when did that come about? How did that come about? Was that something that you had been waiting for for a long time? Yeah, I think, like I say, I, I knew that I wanted to be able... When I said, when I was younger, I want to be an artistic director, I didn't even know what an artistic director really was. I didn't know what the job entailed. I didn't know they involved relationships with the Arts Council and fundraising and managing staff and programming a theatre. I just knew that I wanted to be able to help kids who needed somewhere to belong. Um, and, and to, to provide a community with an outlet and entertainment and a mirror. Uh, and so I guess that's always been sitting in there somewhere. I've always known that I wanted to be an artistic director. Um, 
And then I guess from 2012, that, that became a, an acute focus of mine. So when I applied for the job as Associate Artistic Director at the Royal Exchange, again, like my silly brain says, I've just got to drop a word from my title. I haven't got to gain a word. I haven't, I'm, I'm not a director who has to become an artist director. I'm an associate artist director who just needs to drop the word associate and then I've achieved the thing I need to do. Um, so when I left the Royal Exchange after four years uh, and had made, you know, I'd made big musicals like Into the Woods and uh, Frankenstein, a brand new commission of Frankenstein with April DeAngelis. Um, and then I started applying for all sorts of artist director positions. Uh, of course, we never really talk about the rejections, do we? But I came really close for Stratford East. I came really close for the Lyric Hammersmith. Um, we we should we, we should do. talk rejection stories. We really should. We, really should. we draw we draw a, the dot to dot between all of our successes. Like between oh. all of those dots, there are a hundred failures and a hundred misses and a hundred rejections. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I went for loads of interviews. Uh, the Dunmar, uh, Hampstead. <laughs> the stories are, are hilarious. Uh, so going to meet the chair of, of Donmar, who was the former chief executive of BP, uh, walking through the first mansion, through the garden, into the back mansion. You know when you've got two mansions on the same plot of land? Um, going for the job at Hampstead and saying, the great thing about Hampstead is it's in Camden, and Camden's one of the most diverse places in the world. And if you're serving Camden, you're serving London. If you're serving London, you're serving the world. And this guy leaning across the table and going, no, you're serving Hampstead. Okay, I'll get my my coat. Thank you very much. Yeah. And then then I applied for um, Actors Touring Company in 2008 when Ramin Gray got the position when Bijan Shaibani left. Um, And then I just cracked on with my life. So clearly I was seeking that sort of opportunity. And then it came up again in 2018. And I thought, oh, I'll go for that again. and in my mind, I had such little experience of kind of international work and European theatre. Um, but I knocked on the door and we spoke and they, they said, we'd like to take the job. Uh, so I've now been doing that for four years, um, which enabled me to kind of refocus what that organisation is about, I guess, and, and reframing what international means. So what would you say that organisation is about? Uh, it's about what it's always been about, which is international voices. Uh, but the company I inherited had a real small border around internationalism and that it almost entirely mapped onto white Western Europe. Wow. Okay. If you look at all the plays that, that, and I guess this was Ramin's taste, but there was lots and lots of, uh, German work, of Russian work. Of, uh, of Polish work, of Spanish work, of French work, but again, kind of white Western Europe. Um, and so I simply said, let's expand internationalism uh, to include all of the places that might consider themselves to be international when looking at the UK. Uh, and, and the other thing I became aware of was that there hadn't been much work that had been directed or written by women. And so for the first three years, we just had a commissioning policy that we were only going to commission work by women of colour. Um, and so we commissioned um, Nason Murti, Monticello Adebayo, Yasmin Joseph, um, and then a whole host of writers when we did a, a project called Dear Tomorrow uh, with Kimberly, Stephanie Street, and uh, my uh, dear sir, who's an Israeli writer. Um, 
And that, and actually, Maya's play was one of the first plays that we did. And then I found a play by Michelle Lee, who's uh, got uh, heritage from Laos, but is Australian. And so the thing I became really interested in was like, like we're international. Um, you know what I mean? Like, but by being British, but by having heritage in other places, yeah, there is internationalism within the United Kingdom. And so I became fascinated by kind of stories of migrancy, uh, communities who feel, feel like they don't belong when when they absolutely do. Um, and and female yeah. voices. So yeah, that's that's the work we're doing. And and I think actually to go back to like why theatre, because empathy. That's why mm. theatre. I think it's a really great tool and medium for generating empathy for those who are deemed the other. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know you, you said something really interesting there about the idea that we are international as Brits and within this country. And I think for those of us who you know, when we get asked that question, where are you from? And, you know, that question then becomes, well, where are you really from? And, you know, I always kind of say Manchester because I was born in Manchester. But whenever I then start to talk talk to people about my life and how I have like, you know, dual US and UK nationality and, you know, African-American heritage on my dad's side, but then my dad also grew up in Wales. And so I have a deep connection to Wales. And then it starts to get more and more complicated. And I think when we really dissect what being British, and I'm saying that in kind of quotations, is, it's so much more complicated and rich and exciting. And there is so much culture that's not just worth celebrating, but just worth representing and exposing to people. So yeah, like you say, it's it's all about empathy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Well, I don't love that question. I hate the question, where are you from? Because, yeah. of course, what people are really saying is, why do you look like that? Yeah, why are you brown? <laughs> why, are you, <laughs> why have you got such lips? What is that? Um, yeah. And I yeah. used to do what you do. And sometimes I still do. I, I become smaller. Uh, I get closer to the, you know, I end up in the hospital that I was born oh. in. So where are you from? Uh, United Kingdom. No, where are you really from? London. No, where are you really from? Uh, East London. Where are you really from? Leicester. Where are you really from? Do you know, like, Whips Cross Roads? Do you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, if you want to play this game, we can play this yeah. game. Right until you learn how to ask that question correctly. Yeah. Yeah, you really want to what my heritage is. And yeah, I'll tell you what my heritage is. And I celebrate it because it's beautiful and I'm happy to talk about it. And now yeah. I kind of start going, well, I'm the product of empire. I'm the product of colonialism. Uh, yeah. Some greedy Brits uh, stole some Africans and took them to a bit of stolen land where they could grow sugar. Mm-hmm. That's that's where I'm from. That, you know, uh, Similar story, except mine was cotton. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Cane and cotton. Cane, yeah, yeah. And it's very interesting now living in like the cotton capital of this country, you know, being back here and really kind of old enough to think about what that means. It's, yeah, it's, as we say, kind of all woven into what being British is. And that often comes with a lot of sort of generational trauma. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And all of yeah. this stuff, I think, is what I'm trying to unpick and unpack and explore through the, the plays that I gravitate towards. Um, or even when it's not that, like I've just directed Hey Dougie, which I think is quietly political, like in that it's progressive and non-judgmental and there are gay crabs who live next door to the clubhouse and Happy, who's a crocodile, has a mum who's an elephant because he's adopted. And when you ask them why they made that decision, they say because not all families look the same. Uh, yeah, It's just beautiful. But even when I'm doing something like Hey Dougie, I want to ensure that the people you see on stage 
represent the world that I live in, uh, oh. which means a cross section of, of, of genders and ethnicities and sexualities and religious belief systems and whatever it is. I just oh. want to put the world on stage and and try and celebrate time and time again our shared humanity. Yeah. So, you know, we talked a bit about you directing Dan Kaluuya in Blood Orange, um, which actually we'll come back to in a minute because I want to talk about that a little bit more. Um, I came to see your your show at Edinburgh Fringe um, oh, yeah. this past year, uh, which obviously was kind of a, a dark comedy sort of one-man show for adults. Um <laughs> And then you do Hey Dougie. So I'm really interested to know what is the, what is the thing that makes a Matthew Zia play a Matthew Zia play? What is it that makes you go, yeah, I have to direct this? Um, gosh. There's a real diversity. Yeah. There's a real diversity in the kind of things that you direct. I think some of that has been deliberate. I think when I started, I was working through my own issues with ethnicity and race so all of like you literally look at all the first plays and they've got either crazy hip-hop spellings or the word black somewhere in the title uh after i start to work through that i go oh my god i'm being pigeonholed as the guy who does race plays uh how, how do i not do that so then when an offer comes up to direct a play that's about class i go that's the thing i want to work through let's talk about that um so so then I'm, i get invited to do a uh, into the woods and I just had a child and I would, I'd become fascinated by kind of what a generation does that inspires or or informs what the next generation does and what we pass on to our children and, and what they witness us doing and how they respond to that. Um, again, I to take Into the Woods, for example, I wasn't interested in the fairy story nature of it. I was interested in the fact that we could do this in Manchester in a way that felt like it was about Manchester for Manchester. Um, mm-hmm. Again, feeling afraid as if something terrible is going to happen, which is the play that I did at Edinburgh with uh, Marcelo Dos Santos and Samuel Barnett playing the self-sabotaging gay comedian, um, was that I could, I could kind of see myself in it. I could see my own self-sabotage. I could see my own self-destructiveness. Uh, I could see my... Um, I found it funny. I found it hilarious. Uh, and I really like the writer, but I would say the thing that makes a Matthew Zia play a Matthew Zia play is absolute concern for the audience. Okay. I'm always thinking about the audience. I think lots of plays think, lots of uh, directors think, what story do I want to tell? I think, what effect do I want to have on the audience? Mm. Hence, segregating the audience for Sisway Banzi is dead as they walked into the back corridor of, of the young Vic. There were two signs, Niblankas and Blankas, and a burly police officer directing you down either side based on what he thought your ethnicity was and then you get into the auditorium and you go oh no they're really following this through there is a a black section and a white section of how we're going to experience this piece of work in um blue orange and and what 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 side of the theater would you and i end up sat on well there's white and there's non-white so non-white yeah okay yeah Wow, that is powerful, even yeah. from the top, isn't it? Like yeah, before the play, and I loved hearing the responses as as people did it, and and people realizing it was a game, and also the fact that you then leave that experience and you walk into a desegregated bar in a desegregated London. Uh, yeah. Well, it's not desegregated; it's just never been segregated. Um, 
So I enjoy yeah. that. I enjoy the games that you can play with an audience. Um, for Into the Woods, we stuck like 200 trees in the Great Hall at the Royal Exchange. So in order to get to the theatre, you had to walk through the forest. In mm. Blue Orange, I felt really concerned that we had invited a majority white audience to watch a young black man have a breakdown on stage. And that didn't feel right to me. And so I went, well, how can we get the audience to be closer to his perspective? Ah, like the sheep dip, as I often think of it, like the, the immersion before you hit the play, before the play starts, was that we built an exact replica of the consultation room that the play takes place in underneath the stage. So the audience walk through this consultation room and essentially they're sectioned. They live in a mental uh, institution or a, a mental health facility uh, for three minutes as they find their way into the space. So then once they arrive and they watch the show, hopefully they have more sympathy for Daniel's character and less agreement with the doctors and their wild speculation about what's wrong with this patient. Wow. That is, that's so fascinating. In Hey Dougie, look, even in Hey Dougie, right? Like we give, we give the kids stickers on the way in because in Hey Dougie, every episode, the squirrels, the kids, win a badge at the end of the show. You've got your singing badge. I want the kids to also get their singing badge. So they're part of what's happening on the stage. It's not some disconnect. It's not television. So essentially, it's, it's immersive theatre. There is, is an immersion. There is an immersion, yeah. There is an immersion. There is a, a degree of interactivity. I love direct address. I love talking to the audience. I'm like, what is, what's the difference between cinema and theatre? Well, it's the fact that we're all here. We're all using our, our imaginations collectively to, to make a truth happen. Yeah. Um, and this yeah. is, I guess as well, part of the answer to that question, why theatre? Because these are things that you cannot do on screen. You can only do with theatre. Yeah, and I think it's why I didn't enjoy DJing on Twitch, you know, because it's like, where, where are the people? I need the people. I want to communicate. I want to feel their energy. Oh, man, I did some um, some little uh, Zoom plays during lockdown, and boy, was that a weird experience. I think I did maybe two. Yeah, two. And after the second one, I was like, no, this is just, it just, it's, it's the thief of joy. Yeah. <laughs> because there's no even though you're conscious of the fact that there is an audience there and you can see like you know there's like 168 households watching or whatever it's still you can't feel them no no so it's not the same and And it's not like you know acting for screen which you know I really love doing because you know you're on set with a team and you're kind of exploring the script kind of as you go along with each and every take it's it's about discovery it's about exploration in a similar way to how it is in the rehearsal room with theatre mm-hmm. so this and 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 these zoom plays kind of fall fall somewhere in between down this like crack that feels really lonely and sad <laughs> yeah I've, I've got an idea which is that digital theatre is not a thing it's not a real thing uh it is. there's either poorly funded film <laughs> and we call that digital theatre or there's theatre that you watch on your TV, like literally, like, but you know, you stream it, like you you just film the production and you can watch the production remotely. But I don't think that's digital theatre. I think that's just a recording. Because there was an audience, you know, I have NT at home and there was an audience when that play was put on and those actors were able to feel off that audience and you can hear the audience reactions and there's something really visceral and valuable in that, I think. But yeah, digital theatre... 
no, nothing. Yeah. nothing. I'm, I, and, I, and I have made some short films, and I'm into film and, and, and television, uh, but it's a very different medium. And I, and I do think, to go back to your question, why theatre, there's something that is incredible about live, the live experience and the collective live experience as well. Yeah, yeah. I have to let my cat out, Carla. One second. <laughs> let your cat out. Yeah. Has your cat just been pouring at the? Pouring, yeah, just made a little meow, and I thought that's going to become a loud meow in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to go back to Blue Orange and directing Daniel Kaluuya. What was that like? Was there a moment where you were like, "Wow, this guy, he's going to win an Oscar one day," or has there been like a real kind of evolution with him? No, I think we. I, I, so it's the second time I directed Dan. I directed him in a Alfred Fagan play reading at the National years ago maybe 2011 or, or 10 or something like that um you know an amazing piece by Le- levi david die um which is kind of about like a, a damalola taylor like experience and the ghost of the, the the slain boy comes back and haunts all of the boys who killed him Wow, that's interesting because wasn't it levi who then wrote the screen um, you know the the story of Damalola. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, yeah, did, so kind yeah. of I guess had come from those small beginnings. Yeah, yeah, but um, Daniel's incredible. Uh, we had a mutual respect. He knew about me as DJ Excalibur. I knew about him as the the ridiculously talented boy who wrote episodes of Skins and was in episodes of Skins um, mm-hmm. and Psychoville and things like that. Uh, yeah. That, that's probably one of my favorite things that he's done and you know psychoville just doesn't get enough no. I I, it frustrates me that not more people have seen that show because it's so fantastic and he's so brilliant in it and it's innate his talent is innate and pure and you can sit in unit and talk about objectives and intentions and he just goes can i just show you can we just do it and then he gets up and you're like yeah exactly that that is exactly what we're looking for um yeah. when he came to um start rehearsals he just finished filming get out he just wrapped on get out wow yeah and of course blue orange is about a, a guy who's kind of slightly gone insane because of racism and where he can't quite tell whether it's, is is he projecting racism onto these people or are they or is, are there real racist events happening in his life and so his antenna was so attuned for microaggressions and mm-hmm unconscious bias and heightened forms of racism because he'd been doing that play that it was just brilliant like um i remember david land coming to watch a rehearsal room run and normally david sticks quite close to a production uh particularly if he has concerns he came and saw a rehearsal room run and was like cool i'll see you at first preview you know didn't need to see any dress rehearsals didn't need to come in for any of the tech he was just so confident that that those actors were doing such a brilliant job and they were same for David Haig, same for Luke Norris. Like, I really feel like my role on that was to kind of prime and then get out of their way. And there were, there were bits mm-hmm. of staging that I was working on to make sense of it. But yeah, I always think casting is key. If you get incredibly talented actors, I know they say, what is it, 80% of, of the job is done. But it's true. I really do believe that. So talk to me about the director's relationship with the actors. If you could sum it up, how would you how would you describe it, and how would you um, describe how different it can be depending on how many actors you actually have in the room? 
Yeah. So I think you need to initially convey your vision to the actors so they know what the framework is of the world that you're trying to build on stage, the style of performance that you're after. Uh, and then I think it's I think it's coaching. And I think the, the best directors really respect the actor's craft. Um, and that joke of like, you know, it's my job to tell them where to stand. <laughs> I mean, good actors will know where to stand. They'll feel it innately. They'll move towards the space. They'll move to the, the problem or away from the problem. They'll feel themselves being obscured in an image and they'll open it up. Um, so, yeah, I think coaching and, and bringing the best out of an actor and seeking clarity uh, from you're the first audience member, aren't you? That's how I often think of it. And so if something's not clear to you as that first audience member, you have to help clarify it. Uh, So I remember like a a line that David Haig has to say where he he goes in Blue Orange, it's not my job. And he started doing this thing where he just did like a child voice, it's not my job, which I thought was brilliant. (laughs) Uh, And once he put his hands up uh, as like a faux surrender, like stop, you're pulling me against the wall, it's not my job, just stop, stop the pressure. Uh, and I said, that's really helpful, David, when you put your hands up, because it allows everyone sitting behind you, because we were in the round, to read the quality that you're giving with your face. Ah, yes. So I think it's that. And so much of, of the director's job, I think, is spotting something that the actor's doing and saying, yeah, do that. Mm. Or spotting an, an, an intention uh, that they sit on. And you go, no, 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 that impulse you just had was absolutely... I felt like you were about to stand up there, weren't you? And they go, I was. And I go, well, why didn't you? That was the perfect time to stand up. It makes it really clear that you want to get out of the situation or you want to ramp up the pressure or whatever, you know, is going on underneath the surface. So what was it like working with Samuel Varnett and doing a one-man show? Is that the first time you've directed a one-man show? And what kind of intensity was brought to it by it just being you two working, you know, in a room together day after day? Um... No, not my same. Not my first time doing a one-person show. I'd, I'd done one years and years and years ago, uh, which was about a mother who'd who'd exacted revenge on the boy who'd stabbed her son, uh, and it starts with her dragging a body into the into the flat and then telling you why she's done what she's done. Um, but you're right; it is so intense. There is no break. There's just you and the actor in conversation for three weeks, four weeks. Um, so actually with Sam, I, I, I felt it was really important to not rehearse all day, every day, because you they, you don't get the same sort of breaks where you go, okay, well, I'm going to work on this scene that you're not in. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, the work you've just done kind of seeps into deep memory and into the body. Um, but no, it's brilliant. Like, like, again, he's an incredible actor. He just does it. He just does the work. My job was to ensure that we'd watched about 60 hours of stand-up comedy together uh, and picked up look at what that guy does with his mic lead look at the way he 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 drops some crumbs for those audience members over there and then walks away from them but still has a relationship with them across the stage and then comes back and and gives them the whole loaf look at the way you you feel like he's judging the quality of what he just said and how he's commenting and critiquing live in the space but is that also part of the act i think it's probably scripted to then talk about the joke that didn't go very well but why you've kept it in the set um so yeah a lot of of working with sam was again about staging about keeping it dynamic keeping it pacey and open and making sure that everyone uh, as sarah frankham says in the round you make you've got to make sure you feed all the birds equally uh 
So <laughs> making sure you, if you play to this side, you're going to spend the next four minutes playing to the side you've just ignored. Um, yeah. How much can you do with a turn of a head? Uh, and then helping the writer is, is a big part of the work, I think, and having a kind of big concept. Uh, and I don't want to do any spoilers because the play is coming to London at the end of 2023. So I'm not going to do any spoilers. But all of that <laughs> microphone work where he occasionally drifts off mic uh, and then goes, oh, no, 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 this is my shield. This is my defensiveness. And then that having a big payoff at the end was my thinking of going, actually, what is the relationship between a stand-up comedian who refuses to really let you in and how the microphone becomes a protective force field between the audience and yourself. Oh, so I always think like, yeah, like part of my job is to have one big idea for something like, um, Hey, we should segregate the audience or uh, yeah. isn't, isn't it all about the microphone? And when he's being really vulnerable and true, I think he should come off mic and let's mm. see how that plays out. Um, but yeah. scary that then for him yeah exactly to be unguarded to really be unguarded so you've you've talked a bit before and I think you've even written a bit about your experiences at the fringe in general um you know as a man of black heritage and kind of moving through that microcosm um and the chaos and craziness and you know racism and classism and all of that that comes with it um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and about what it was like going this time around in August 2022 and having a show that was such a runaway success. Were you expecting that experience that time around? I'm not sure. I'm not really sure what I was expecting uh, other than to, to make a show and put it on and, and see what the response was. Um, I knew that Sam was a bit of a box office draw uh, because of his brilliant experience and, and CV. Um, mm -hmm. But no, previously when I've been there, I've, I've felt marginalised, invisible, ignored, um, literally ignored people turning away from me as I go towards them to take a flyer and they think, that brown guy doesn't want to see Dad's army. I'm thinking, my granddad died two years ago and all I want to do is visit a little memory of sitting on his lap and watching Dad's army. Please can I have a flyer to the dreadful production you're putting on? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this time I was like, I'll go. I, I said years ago, I'm never going back there. It's, it's like if you took all the worst bits of the industry uh, and re simmered overheat until they were kind of really concentrated, that's what it is. Uh, it's wildly middle class, overwhelmingly white, uh, very exclusionary and exclusive. And I just mm. thought, I don't, I don't need that experience. Uh, I put myself in places of low diversity and I never really enjoy it. So I'm not going to do it again. And then we had this play. And we had the opportunity of, of taking it to Edinburgh. And I think I believed in the play and I believed in the writer and I believed in the actor. And I, I, I thought it was hilarious. And I thought, let's do it. And I thought, if I can go there and get out in five days, I'll be fine. Of course, within those five days, someone called me a name on the streets and I thought oh there it is again oh, the reason I didn't want to come back here um, and quite... having that juxtaposed with such huge success must feel so weird yeah yeah and and, and it, the, the first time I was there being ignored by all of these students and I was thinking I'm here scouting for talent on behalf of one of the major producing theatres in the country and you're turning away from me and denying yourself the opportunity of being 
you know, seen, spotted. Um, Gosh. And now here I am again with a with a a, a show that's kind of a runaway success. Uh, but yet still, I'm, I'm, I, I don't feel protected from racism, which can rear its head at any point. Um, and this is, you know, where we start to find holes in this idea of black excellence. You know, this idea that if you are exceptional as a black person, then you can avoid dealing with racism. Yeah. And actually, it's kind of not true because the moment you're out of the context of that success, you know, in the theatre where the play is happening, great. Like everybody knows who you are and what role you've had to play in that success. But the moment you're just then walking two, three, four streets away, yep. people don't know that you're attached to that. And so it doesn't protect you. The success yeah. doesn't protect you. There was a brilliant TED talk by a woman whose name I've now forgotten. And I used to watch it almost yearly because it was so good. Uh, Color Brave, it's called. Um, mm-hmm. And I cannot remember her name, but she is one of the, the highest paid black female executives in America. Uh, she also happens to be married to George Lucas. Uh, as well um so she's mrs lucas uh that's why i'll call her that for now um but again like she's a brilliant human being in her own right which is why it's dreadful i can't remember her name um but anyway she talks about going to give speeches and being mistaken for the cleaner you know in the elevator and being told that the the supply cupboards on the ground floor where are you going or i think about oprah winfrey going into a jewelry store and being told that she can't afford anything in it and you're like she could buy the entire chain what are you talking about like she could like all of your houses and the boss's house and every single shop you own and yet the black woman and you don't know what she looks like you make these assumptions so i don't think we're ever protected by that are we you can be lewis hamilton and pulled over for for driving a fancy car yeah Um, and i've definitely had that experience of going to eat in a nice restaurant and like standing up to go to the loo or something like that and Oh, can you uh, bring yeah. us our menus? <laughs> yeah, I don't work here. <laughs> I don't work here. I'm I'm just like you, except I'm not just like you. <laughs> lovely uh, David Judge, who's an actor and a writer, who you'll probably know because he's had work produced by Box of Tricks. Well, we've actually um, got him on the podcast. Ah, yeah, super. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great advertisement for the podcast. Going forward for you, you see. Um, but no, you know, he 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 did a, a Facebook post the other day, um, which I hope he doesn't mind me sharing because uh, it feels important. Sure he would. Um, no, he's a chronic oversharer, so I'm sure he wouldn't. Um, he was sat somewhere in in Edinburgh, I think, uh, writing because he's currently under commissioned to write for uh, Corrie and he was working on his episode of Coronation Street uh, someone said how lovely it is that you've been given a break and they're letting you have a you know half an hour off your feet and he thought oh no this person thinks I work here in this cafe I don't work here I'm a playwright and an actor uh oh. just wrapped on an episode of blah blah and I'm writing an episode of blah blah and what he really wanted to do was go and sit down and talk to them and, and tell them everything about who he is and how he's become who he is and the obstacles he's had to overcome to get there. But he didn't. He just sent them a bottle of wine and left. Which I wow. think glassy as heck. <laughs> <laughs> so what would be your advice for a director, particularly, you know, a young emerging director of colour? What would be your biggest bit of advice for how to find success in the world of theatre uh find your tribe is the new thing i've started saying it it wasn't what i used to say because it was so hard 
to find people who looked like us in the industry who had any position of power. But now you don't need to be the only one in the room. Uh, you can go to the Bush, you can go to the Young Vic, you can come to ATC, you can go to Eclipse, Theatre for Honzi, you can go to the Royal Exchange, you can go to Liverpool Edge Manor Playhouse, you can go to Leeds 2023, you can go to Freedom Studios, you can, you know what I mean, I can just keep naming buildings and companies that have got uh, black excellence, Asian excellence, black brilliance, Asian brilliance, people of colour at the top. Go there, go there first, I would say. Um, the thing I used to say was go to your local theatre. Let that be the place that you build a relationship with because that's your community, which also means in a way that's your tribe. Um, but yeah, I would say there are now so many of us doing this thing. Seek counsel, seek guidance, seek mentorship from from people who you feel have faced some of the same obstacles you have. Um, find those early career opportunities that enable you just to work with actors, to work with writers, to work on scripts, to read scripts, read a ton of scripts, uh, find the sort of writing that appeals to you, find the stories you want to tell, um, begin to find places that you might be able to put those scripts on. So I'm thinking about like all of the, the schemes, the RTYDS, the Open Exchange, Genesis Network, uh, 503 Writers Programme. All those writers need their new plays to be directed. Build relationships with writers. Um, hustle, hustle hard, uh, but be kind to yourself in the process. Love that. Matthew Zia, thank you so much. You've been absolutely fantastic. This has been a really inspiring episode of the podcast. So thank you so much for talking to me. No, thanks for inviting me on. I hope it's useful to some uh, emerging director, playwright, actor somewhere out there. What an amazing chat. It really feels like we covered so much ground. And like the absolute pro that he is, without even knowing the episode was coming up, Matthew managed to expertly throw forward to one of our forthcoming episodes featuring the brilliant David Judge. All that's to come in the next few episodes of the podcast. And Actors Touring Company's current show, Family Tree, is touring the UK until the 17th of June 2023. Check out atctheatre.com for dates, venues and tickets. If you enjoyed listening, tell your friends, share on your socials and of course, subscribe. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, we'd be very grateful if you could leave us a review. It helps people find us. You can follow Box of Tricks on Twitter at B-O-T-T-C and on Instagram at Box of Tricks Theatre. You can find me at Carla M. Sweet on both platforms. That's Carla with a K. And you can follow Matthew on both Twitter and Instagram at Excalibur. Thanks for joining us again for the Playmakers podcast. We are going to have a mid-season break the week after next, so you won't hear from us as usual. But we'll be back in a few weeks' time with four more episodes before the season's over. I'll see you then. Mm-hmm.